like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'll be beginning my look at Galactic Pot Healer. This, as I've mentioned before, I'm sure, is my favorite Philip K. Dick novel. I, I think it's his best. Um, you know, if I were to make a ranking of his top top novels, this would be the top one, pretty much without too much competition. There's maybe a few that could give it a run for his money, but I, I think this is his best novel, and, and it's one a lot of people haven't haven't read. And and I'll, I'll try to tell you just briefly now why I, why I think this is his best novel, and it comes down to the fact that this is one of his first to really give clear solutions to the problems he's been articulating throughout throughout his career. Um, now, of course, we can remember the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. This, These three stigmata, I think, sum up more or less what Dick thinks the problem in, in the world is um, and the problems people are facing. And, and those three are alienation, uh, blurred reality, and despair, right? And to some degree, our character... Joe, Joe Fernwright, our character in Galactic Pot Healer, Joe Fernwright feels all these, especially alienation and and dis- despair, but blurred reality as well in the sense that his the meaning of his life is distorted, right? And that's what this comes down to. This is a novel about really the meaning of life and where we find it, and and how how we can have a purpose, and the conclusion that. Dick comes to it. There's really two. There's two solutions, and neither one is presented as better. Um, now they can work together hand in hand, but they are they are separable at the end. And we see very clearly at the end that that Dick meant these to be separable solutions. But they're both they're all solutions to these problems, right? And these two solutions are are some kind of gestalt, some kind of collective experience or collective existence. These are things Dick has been writing about. Um, but never presented them so clearly and vividly, and, and in fact, emotionally. This is one of his one of those novels where where there's there's passages here that that make you choke up almost when you when you read them because they're just so powerful and meaningful. Uh, but you know, like you have the black box in Do Andrews Dream of Electric Sheep, and you have the Utiti movement in Counterclock World, and you have. Um, uh, the, the shared kind of half-life experience in, in Ubik. You have all of these examples of, of shared complex, you know, existences, kind of uh, the gestalt that, you know, but in other works, but it's really articulated here very clearly, right? It's not a huge part of the novel, but at the end it's presented really as a solution to our dilemma. The other one is, is what it comes down to is, is creativity and actually making something. And this is what I think is so profound about Dick, and I think it's something that we can pull so much of his work back to his earlier stories about automation. Even Stability, his first short story, pulls back to this question, and that is, how can one find meaning in work? In his view, this is almost impossible with automation, right? This He lives in the age of scientific management, where work has been, um, as some scholars have said, degraded, right? Made 
meaningless by technology, by division of labor, by the separation of the physical and mental aspects of labor. Um, if you need a quick refresher on scientific management, um, basically it emerged in the later 19th century, early 20th century by people like Frederick Winslow Taylor and of course Ford. And the goal here was really to disempower the working class and increase productivity by subdividing labor into its component parts. What this essentially did is it took the mental part of labor and gave it to management, right? Before it was in the workers. Like this old saying was the workman's brain or the manager's brains under the workman's cap. This was, this was because workers on the shop floor did the actual construction, right? And they basically did it on their own pace with their own work rules. And sometimes unions had a big role in this. To disempower the workers in the later 19th century and to increase production, they went, you know, and the fact that was this increased production necessary, one could argue yes, because it lowered prices and allowed mass society. But we also need to remember that the 1930s depression was a depression of affluence. It was a depression uh, where of overproduction, right? It was a demand crisis. It wasn't a supply crisis. But anyways, uh, you know, for better, or for worse, mostly for worse, uh, work was subdivided and, and managed and turned into something from the workers' point of view into something kind of meaningless and trite. They just became an extension of, of the machine, right? And this is something Dick was horrified by. It's even something Marx was horrified by. When Marx talks about alienation, the very word that Dick uses in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, when he talks about alienation, it means this division between the mental aspect of our, of our lives and our, and our labor. Right? And that's what capitalism does. It turns our labor into a commodity instead of a, a mental, physical process. And the result of that is we don't feel we're, we're one with what we create anymore. You know, compare working in a factory for eight hours making tables to what the pleasure one gets making a table in their basement, right? Planning it from scratch, looking at the plan, selecting the wood and going through the whole plan. You know, I'm not a carpenter, but, you know, I know plenty of people who get great pleasure out of that. You know, but maybe if they're in a factory making that, they wouldn't get that same type of enjoyment. Of course, Dick takes this to the extreme in his stories with stories of automation, where the machine takes over all aspects of production. And he's critiqued that from a dozen different ways, right? But he's never quite sat down and said, this is a solution. I think the closest he maybe gets is in a story like The Variable Man, where, or in just his fascination with the tinkerer and the, the creative repairman. You know, those kind of characters are so dominant in this fiction that their solution is somewhere in that. But it's in Galactic Patior that Dick just comes out and says it. It's that the meaning of life is creativity and, and making something and projects and doing great things. And, and, you know, there's a many ways we can do that, right? We can latch on to the, the grand project like our characters do. It can be just making... A pot. It can be just repairing a pot, actually. Even the repair is something, right? Although Dick would go farther and say, even making the pot, right? When you pick up this novel, Galactic Pot Healer, you might think, why do I care about a guy who repairs ceramic, cer ceramic pots in a science fiction novel, right? You know, it doesn't seem to fit. It seems out of place, right? But Dick wanted to pick something that's a craft, right? Whether it's repairing pots, quote-unquote healing them, or you know, or making them, it's a craft. It's something that takes full, our full mental, uh, you know, ability. And in that sense, we're fully human when we're making a pot, 
from, from scratch, from a lump of clay, right? There's a scene in this novel at the end where you see our main character actually putting his fists into, a, you know, a lump, a lump of clay, right? And at that moment, he's being fully human, something he, he, he hadn't been for so much of his life. So creativity is, is part of that, uh, you know, and then the big project is something that's collective. So Dick in this novel also makes peace with the individual craftsperson, the one who sits down in his workbench and, and prepares something out of his own mind and, and energy. And then the necessities of, of the modern industrial world to work collectively to get anything meaningful, get, to, to get anything meaningful done, right? We can't all just make pots, right? Some of us have to make skyscrapers and trains and you know, solar panels and things. And that, that work is collective, right? And it, we can, he wants to say here, we can be part of that collective effort, right? Even if we're just one component part of it because we're doing something great. Right? And that gives us meaning in our life as well. And that's where the Gestalt thesis comes in. So that, that answer that Dick gives here is, you know, I think what makes this novel so, so powerful. So anyways, um, the novel is one of his shortest novels. It's, the audiobook is, is just six hours, just over six hours. The vintage version, no, I have the Mariner version for Galactic Pot Healer. Uh, these were the the later series of publications. I think first there was the vintage ones, which have kind of the ugly covers, and then the Mariner ones are, are a little bit nicer feel in your hand. They're, uh, they got the more matte covering that's more popular now in novels. And uh, they're put together better. They have better covers. They're just prettier. Uh, they got the PKD on the cover though. I don't know how I feel about that. I never liked that branding of, of Philip Dick. Um, but nevertheless, it's, that's the version I have. And it only comes in at 180 pages, right? So this is kind of like a one-day read or a two-day read, depending on how fast you go. It's, it's, it's 16 chapters. Um, in fact, uh, Dick doesn't waste too much time in the novel. He, he comes out right with his agenda, and, and he gets to the end. I mean, it, you know, it almost reads like an like a extended short story in that it's got a very tight plot. It doesn't meander. It, it gets straight to the point goes right where it needs to do, it go and it doesn't like waste time with a lot of subplots and, and that way it doesn't feel fully like a dick novel where you have in so many of the other stories him playing around with settings and characters he doesn't do that here he just it's there's no fat in this book really um and that i think is something striking about it it, it seems he wrote this with an agenda he wasn't writing this one to to meet a deadline or to you know, or he didn't feel he had to like recycle plots from other stories. He, he just, he had a story, he had something he needed to tell when he told it. Now, I don't know the actual writing history of this one, but the writing history of it, but I, I feel that that's what I feel when I read it, that, that Dick had a very clear agenda and he pursued it pretty relentlessly. And that what makes it, I think, uh, one of his better written novels, actually, because it's, it's so focused throughout it on, on its main themes. And it doesn't, it doesn't meander like some of his other works do. Okay, then let's talk about the first few chapters of, of Galactic Pot Healer, the first four to be specific. Now, our character is uh, in, in a totalitarian society on Earth. It's, it's a pretty bleak place. It's not where most of the novel's set, though. He gets us out of it pretty quickly, but he does spend his time really laying in the misery of this place. Whether it's the, it's not even that, that is a police state, that's almost an ex. Um, 
an add-on, right? It's almost like a, you need to have it to be a police state for it to fully make sense. And we do encounter the police state, but that's not the worst aspect of it. The worst aspect of it is just the meaninglessness of life felt by virtually everyone. Um, so on our very first page, we learn that Joe Fernwright, our main character, is a pot healer. And he's doing a job that's no longer needed to be done, right? There was a time after the war when pots had to be fixed. People, family heirlooms had to be restored. But, you know, it's not necessary anymore because we have a disposable consumer society, right? And, and virtually everything is disposable here, whether it's people or, you know, kitchenware or, um, you know, money, whatever it may be it's 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 almost like a post-consumer um i don't want to say post-consumer society it's like the, the the finality of the consumer society almost where um the very job of of repairing of healing a pot is, is meaningless because no one saves anything everything is just thrown out and replaced um, this is how the novel begins, quote, His father had been a pot healer before him, and so he too healed pots. In fact, any kind of ceramic were left over from the old days before the war, when objects had not been made of plastic. A ceramic pot was a wonderful thing, and each had he had healed became an object which he loved, and he never forgot the shape of it, the texture of it, and the glaze, and, re and it remained with him on and on. Almost, however, almost no one needed his work, his services. Too few ceramic pieces remained, and those persons who owned them took great care to see they did not break. And that, that's, that's the situation right there. Um, you don't need to say too much more to know Fernwright's problem. First, he gets great meaning of his work. Healing pots is not just gluing together pieces. It's, it's a technological art where almost the molecules are fused together. He, he, he repairs pieces that are missing. He, he makes himself. It's, and he says here he remembers every piece he heals. It's, it's a, he's fully engaged. He's fully human when he's making these pots. But his job is not necessary anymore. He's useless. He is, his life is, is essentially meaningless. That's what we're told in this first um, page. And then we see him go into his office. And his office makes things worse because he, he has to go into this office every day. It's not entirely clear why. It just seems everyone, you know, has a cubicle that they go to work every day, even if they don't have anything to do. And that seems to be most people. It's a... It's an automated economy. We see plenty of evidence of automation. We see robots doing things. We see mentions, I think, of autofacts. So there's no reason for people to go to work, but they still go to work. And they sit there in cubicles by the thousands, you know, thousands of cubicles on one floor. And they sit there and they're essentially on the dole. That, that's it. That, Fern writes on the... The kind of a veteran's dole and and that's virtually it seems everyone is sort of on this dole right um say what you want about like this universal basic income plan but you know i don't think dick would have been content with that i mean he, he's something kind of scary about that to him and that is this this idea that you can't find meaning in life outside of work you know maybe we can i think we can but dick's certainly concerned about this possibility and in this world, everything is disposable, even the money. You know, the dole check they get has to be cashed immediately because of hyperinflation. If they don't spend stuff right away, the money becomes worthless. So it's actually um, bizarre almost not to spend away your check as soon as you get it. And it's a daily dole. That's how bad the inflation is, is they have to give out the dole every day. Where does Fernwright find meaning in his life? And he, he finds a little bit. 
and he finds it in the game. The game is so interesting here. There's a lot of puns. There's a lot of playing with language in this this book. Um, but in the game, Dick almost, you know, foreshadows here people in bullshit jobs in their office playing around on Facebook or something. It, it's it's not quite that, but it's pretty darn close to to people who don't have anything useful to do in their job just messing around on the internet. Um, we even have kind of a Google Translate kind of device here. Essentially, the game could be played different ways, but it essentially involves you calling people from around the world and engaging in word play with them, right? So it's kind of like a an online chat almost, but it's still through phones. I mean, Dick didn't predict the internet here, but he, it's something eerily like um, this. I mean, and we even have Google Translates, but or the, the equivalent of it. So what one will do when they're playing the game is choose a book title and then call the Japanese translator because, you know, we don't have the internet. You can't just type it in. He has to call in the translation. So you, you call it and you speak the book title to the Japanese translator. It comes back in Japanese. You record it, then you call the English translator with the Japanese title and it comes back to you all, gar all garbled, right? You probably have done this yourself where you go on Google Translate and you flip it a few times, right? And you see what the song lyrics are if you translate, you know, via three or four different languages and it's completely different and humorous. That is what they do. And then the challenge then in the game is to, you find a really good translation and you give it to people and then the, the, the trick is to try to figure out what the original book title was, right? That's one version of the game. Another version of the game is looking through old newspapers and finding the funniest title, but that's also has to do with things being sort of out of place. So one example, this is the headline, Elmo Plaskett Sinks Giants. Um, now that's a sports title. It's a it's a player with a weird name who, I guess, hit a home run off the Giants pitcher and, and won the game, right? But, you know, out of context, the, the, the headline looks strange. So it becomes a word game. Now, later in the novel, Joe Fernwright's going to be around a lot of people who don't speak Terra, don't speak English as a first language. And so we're going to have all kinds of translation games with those people. So the game becomes something quite real. And I think that's very conscious on Dick's part. I think... You know, there's a difference between calling someone up and playing word games with them and trying to sit down with someone, a friend, a lover, who maybe doesn't speak your language quite well and actually trying to dissect what they're saying and their meaning. Right? I, I think that's very conscious. I think Dick is saying that's where real life is lived. It's, it's not in the, the phone call, right? Those people might be friends in, in some degree, but they are people far away who are just bored like you playing along in this game. Now, every aspect of people's lives in this world are, are, are sort of regulated, except when they're at work, they just sit around not doing anything. There's no real work ethic because there's no reason for work. But at the same time, when people are walking on the streets, if they walk too slow, they can be arrested by the police. Um, actually, I think that covers most of what we learn about this world in chapter chapter one much of it is spent him playing the game with some guy in russia and someone else and i'll, I'll give you a couple examples of, of the title game how it's played um let me find one okay so this one this is the the clue the chess piece made insolvent end quote and it's a famous movie title and the answer is the pawnbroker 
right? So insolvent is broke, chess piece, chess piece is pawn. So it's like take the literal translation of these things. And I think they got the great Gatsby here. That one was actually pretty hard. Um, here's one. Those for which the male homosexual exacts transit tax. And the answer is for whom the bell tolls. Now, I didn't know that that bell was ever a term for the male homosexual. But apparently it was or is in this world. So he's just at work playing this because there's no pots to heal. There's nothing for him to do. It's just he dresses, he goes to work, he sits in his office, plays the game, goes home at the end of the day. Lives off the dole. But in, he gets a note while he's at work. He never gets notes while he's at work. All he gets is his dole check. But Fernwright gets a note and it just says, Pot healer, I need you and I will pay. And, and that's it. So chapter two, Fernwright goes to his house and we got a typical Philip Dick Kahn apt. It, it's described in some detail here. Quote, home consisted of a room on a subsurface level of a huge apartment building. Once the Jiffy View Company of Greater Cleveland came by every six months and created a 3D projected animation of the view of Carmel, California. This view fitted his room's window, or Erzak window. However, of late, due to his bad financial situation, Joe had given up trying to imagine that he lived on a great hill with a view of the sea and a towering redwoods. He had been content, or rather resigned, to face blank, inert, black glass. And in addition, if that wasn't enough, he had let his psycho lapse, psycho lease lapse, the emphasetic gadget installed in his closet of his room, which while he was home, compiled his brain to believe that his Erzak view of Carmel was authentic. The delusion was gone from his brain and the illusion was gone from the window. Now home from work, he sat in a state of depression, reflecting as always on the futile aspects of life. We get a little bit of here about how he used to get work after the war from the Cleveland like museum, which had to repair stuff to damage in the war, but that work died out, dried up. And more other aspects of his life had fallen apart. And of course, part of that is going to be a marriage, right? Marriage doesn't play a huge role in this novel, but Joe Fernwright is divorced. His ex-wife, Kate, is a, a domineering person who demands alimony checks. And um, I don't know how that works with uh, hyperinflation. The alimony, I guess, would very quickly be, not be worth that much unless it was tagged to inflation. I don't think Dick gets in that much detail here. Um, he calls her and asks her about like this job he got, and she immediately poo-poos it and says, no one's going to pay you to peel a pot unless it's a pornographic pot. And those are illegal, <clears throat> so don't even bother trying. And then he finds out she's having a party, and he kind of invites himself to the party, and she says, you really have nothing to offer at the party. And he says, I can offer conversationally and then she says tell me something witty and he makes up says something banal about Mozart or Beethoven and she hangs up on him and that's more or less what we get of of Kate it's it's kind of an undead marriage not quite literally as undead as what we saw in Ubik but in the sense where it hangs over our character the, the marriage it, it's it's over but it's still in their minds it's something that lives on in a way now Joe at this point has decided he needs to find a different job He's, he can't just live off the dole and heal pots. So he's going to go, he's going to, he saved up all these quarters, this actual metal currency. And they're like in his toilet, you know, in the back part of the toilet, right? Where the, the water tank part, he, in a, in a asbestos bag. Um, he's going to take those to the Mr. Job and use them to basically pay for a service to find a job. I guess the Mr. Job is an automated computer. There, there's a lot of these kind of automated 
uh, computer things. There's a thing called a padre, which you can call for religious advice. You can call encyclopedias. You can call translators, of course. So he, you know, he's he's going to save up for the Mister Job machine, which will, I guess, give him a mean, try to give him a meaningful job. That's what he's hoping for. So he goes to look at his quarters, which he saved up, and he finds another note in his toilet. And this note says, I will pay you 35,000 crumbles. Now, Joe Fernwright, you know, smart guy, but maybe not the most knowledgeable about things, doesn't know what a crumple is. So what does he do? He calls the dictionary. Um, so there's actually dictionaries you call and encyclopedias you call. Now, this is a very interesting thing about this novel is it seems we're in... Again, it kind of foreshadows the internet in a very bizarre way, right? Knowledge is post-scarcity. Any information we want is free at our fingertips if we just search it, right? Wikipedia has it all there. You know, this this podcast even is, I guess, kind of moot because you can read, look up these novels on the on, on Wikipedia, right? And make your own decisions about it. But whatever. Or there's 20 other Philip Dick podcasts, right? You can Knowledge is post-scarcity in our world. That's the point I'm trying to make. And... Here it is too, it seems. You can just call up and get the information. But at the same time, the government imposes artificial scarcity on this to make it almost a commodity. So, you know, you only get like two questions a day per the encyclopedia or the dictionary. And if you use them up, you have to wait 24 hours. And if you don't like that, you have to pay the service fee to get the unlimited, right? It's so fascinating. Um, it's... It's such a good example of artificial scarcity in a world with post-scarcity, which I think this world is. It's a post-scarcity world in many ways. What's scarce, I guess, is meaning in life. But even that, even when you have post-scarcity information, you still have government trying to limit that to make it a commodity, to make it scarce and precious. So anyways, he calls up the dictionary to find out what a crumple is, and he finds out it's a currency in... I think it's Cirrus 5 is the planet. And then he says, well, how much is it worth? And he says, oh, you got to call the banking service for that. And poor um, Fernwright, um, you know, calls up the banking service and then they say, well, it's too late. It's a global system, but it still has hours. It's still, I guess, on a Western, um, Western eight-hour day or something. So he has to wait four hours before finding out what 35,000 crumples is in, in Earth dollars. Um, so he goes to sleep. He decides, I'll take a four-hour nap. And that, and we're going to, you know, that's a whole other deal. Uh, taking a nap is not as easy as it thinks, as you might think. The problem with taking a nap is when you sleep, you're forced to listen to advertisements and dreams. Actually, it's dreams. It's not quite advertisements. Written by the government and distributed to everyone in the society as kind of a form of of communism, it also serves as kind of an anodyne, the way Fernwright describes it later, is, quote, a dream, compensation for a state of reality, night after night. It's almost worse than being awake. The only way you can get out of having a dream is if you are in bed with someone else. He tries to claim he is in bed with someone else to get out of a dream, and the bed replies, well, there's only 140 pounds on this bed, so obviously you're not with someone else, so you have to do the dream. So he gets the dream, and the dream is, interestingly, it's a dream of, first, it's like, it's a whole act of consumption. It's like a TV show, right? It, it, it's presented as a TV show. It even has writers and credits and all that stuff. It, it's like made in a studio and then beamed to everyone, but individualized in a way. 
But the most important thing about this dream is it's a dream in which he has meaning. It's a dream where he does something relevant. He does something important, which is exactly what's lacking in the world for most people. In this particular dream, it's not he's healing past because everyone gets the same dream. It's that he designed the new money and his face is on the money, right? And he gets praised for that. And he gives a speech to the people about, you know, his contribution. Uh, there's a comparison here to Che Guevara or something too with that. And, and it's a, again, it's a dream about having meaning. Even though that meaning is kind of silly, it, that's what it's about. And that's what you're supposed to feel when you're, when you're in that dream. So eventually he wakes up and he immediately calls the banking services and finds out what 35,000 crumples are in terms of dollars. And the answer he gets is, the answer he gets is two times 10 to the 44th dollars is what 35,000 crumples is. Now, I don't know how much that is. It's apparently a huge amount, but we're also in a world of hyperinflation where money that is loses 80% of its value by the end of every day. So it may not be, it's not a grotesque amount perhaps. It may just speak to how deflated the, inflated the currency on earth, earth is. But it seems to be a significant amount of money nonetheless. So then he goes and he calls the, um, encyclopedia no wait before he calls the encyclopedia he immediately gets uh, not the police come to his door immediately they're actually the quietude civil authority the, the QCA agents and the reason they come to him is you know because they found out someone was calling a bank about 35,000 crumples and obviously something illegal is going on if they're playing around with that much money so the, they, they investigate him and they, they ask him questions about what he got. And they're not really to nail anything on him illegal, but they do say, like, we're on to you. We're going to keep an eye on you and you have to make reports every day. So it's just more of a burden to his already kind of miserable life is that he's going to have to report to the police every day about this, this matter. We learn, though, that, that uh, Joe Fernwright is a bit brave towards the police and he's, he's got a sense of humor about them, too. When asked about what kind of pot would require that much money, you know, to make, Joe says, maybe it's one gigantic pot, a pot the size of a planet with 50 glazes. Um, but anyways, they get bored and they, they go away. So then he calls the, the encyclopedia number to find out what he can about Cirrus 5, which is this planet uh, that uses crumbles. And he finds out a bunch of stuff. And he, one important thing he finds out is that the current dominant species on the planet is a single entity called a glimmon. Quote, this shadowy, enormous entity is not native to the planet. It migrated there several centuries ago, taking over from the feeble species such as wubs, wergers, clacks, tropes, and printers left over from the once ruling master species. The so-called frog things of antiquity passed away. So that's what he learns. He learns that there is a dominant species on this planet called a glimmon. And that's more or less the end of the chapter. Um, he, I think he tries to keep asking questions and then the encyclopedia machine says, you used up your allotted questions for the, for the day. So poor Joe Fernwright. But there's some logic to it, according to Fernwright, and that is our society is the perfect form of government. Everyone is aced out in the end, right? It, it's kind of this, it's a type of a perverted communism in which everyone is miserable, right? Rather than everyone having their, their basic needs met. And having basic security. Um, and I think it comes about because of this artificial scarcity, 
right? Where there's no need for anyone to work because there's obviously more than enough for people to live on, but still everyone is kind of miserable and the stuff they have is kind of shitty. Their apartments are horrible, right? So it, it all seems to be an artificial type of scarcity, right? Artificially meaning, meaningless and, and just kind of icky. So that's, that's the, that it for that day. And then he goes to work the next day. This is in chapter three. He goes to work the next day and he gets another letter, say from the same possible employer. And it says this time, ship out to Plowman's Planet, Mr. Fernwright, where you are needed. Your life will signify something. You'll create a permanent endeavor which will outlast me as well as you. End quote. So this is a little bit more interesting because it's, it's exactly what Fernwright, need, Fernwright needs. And it's going to say what? we need and it's exactly what dick is saying we need in our life and that is meaning with a project an endeavor right a permanent endeavor something that will last beyond us some kind of an achievement right you know there's no more pots to fix so he needs a job essentially and a job that has meaning not just sitting in a cubicle now he calls his friend smith one of the people he plays a game with and he asks about you know, if there's any more to this message, where would I find it? And he says, well, you got to you know, put fire underneath it, under the paper, and this will burn any milk in case there's a secret message. And so he does that, and the, there is runes in the written in milk at the bottom of the note. And they say, we shall raise health scala. Right? So here's a really clear statement of what the great endeavor is going to be. Now, it's not clear what that is to Fernwright yet, but it sounds great. It sounds like a big project. It sounds... Actually, pretty amazing. We will raise Held Scala. So he goes and he, he has Smith call the encyclopedia. He uses up his encyclopedia allowance. He has Smith call for him. And he gets information about Held Scala, about Glimmon, and about the, the location, Plowman's Planet. And he finds out Plowman's Planet is indeed Cirrus 5. Uh, Smith finds out a little bit more about Glimmon. Um, some of the information suggests that Glimmon is old and infirm and, and sort of dying. But it doesn't take long for Joe to figure out sort of what his plan is going to be. Kaltskala, it seems, is an old cathedral that once existed on this planet but had sunk below the waves. And here's what Joe says, or thinks. He could see it, Glimmon, or the Glimmon, if that was correct. Evidently, there's only one of them, intended to raise the ancient cathedral Kaltskala. And to do so, the Glimmon needed a wide span of skills, such as his own, for example, his ability to heal ceramic ware. Kaltskala obviously contained pots enough of them to cause the Glimmon to approach him and to offer him a good sum for his work. By now, he's probably recruited 200 skills from 200 planets, Joe realized. I'm not the only one getting peculiar letters, etc. He saw in his mind a great cannon being fired, and out of its special delivery letters, thousands of them addressed to various life forms, individuals throughout the galaxy. So, that's interesting, because now it's not just individual job, it's, it's a collective endeavor. Right. And again, I think Dick opens up the door here for one to find meaning and in work individually. But more profoundly, it's because that's not the world we live in. We don't live in a world where we can all sit and just work individually in our, you know, in our basement or whatever. Right. In our own workshop. Whatever, you know, economy we're going to have, it's going to be collective. Right. Even if we make pencils. Right. There, there's. All kinds of knowledge and wisdom and skills and talents that go into making something as simple as pencils. No one makes anything alone anymore. 
Now, Smith sort of tells him after all these conversations that, you know, maybe you can stay on Earth. Maybe there's still a future for you here. And even says, we got a new game going on. And this is the game where they find a headline that's funny and they can share it. And whoever gets the best headline kind of wins. But Joe will have none of this. He He's already basically convinced himself in his mind that he's going to help raise Held Scala. All right. So then chapter four. Chapter four is fairly long. I think it's the longest of these first four. Um, but um, a, lot, a lot actually happens, but there's a lot of humor in this chapter. It's, it's um, Dick's playing us for jokes a little bit here. Um, well, he's, so he's walking the city. It's a little bit after this. He's walking the city, and he's got his bag of coins. And now his decision is, does he go to Glimmon, go to the spaceport, or does he go to the Mr. Job with his sack of quarters? And he starts some... People, I think some beggars come and ask him for coins to look at, or just look to look at his coins, and he starts giving them away. He starts giving away the coins to to people, and this very quickly gets him arrested. He gives away most of his coins, but it's such a bizarre activity, right? And that that's a like a horrific thing about the society is charity, like giving one's wealth away to the poor is is basically considered a mental illness and a, a crime punishable with imprisonment. They drag him to the police station, and again we see Fernwright's bravery towards the police. These aren't the same agents, but pretty soon his name's going to be cross-referenced in the computers. Um, but he says, like, what you did was a crime against the people, and Joe replies, the state, not the people. Which I think is a very brave thing to say when you're in a police station. But the police say, what you're saying constitutes in itself a felony. We could book you on that too. We could even turn you over to the political control bureau as an enemy of the working class, engage in a conspiracy to advocate agitation among the people and the servants of the people such as ourselves. But your record heretofore, a sane man doesn't start handing out coins to total strangers. Obviously, you acted without deliberation. So the police just think it's such a bizarre act that he must have just gone temporarily insane or something. Um, and they're about ready to let him go, and then they get the notice that he's on like the watch list over this thirty-five thousand crumples weird weird request he made on the banking system, and so they're going to hold him then. And then Joe tries to escape, and he has this very strange experience where he suddenly gets like kind of washed away, and there's like like, and he's almost in water, and he feels he's in water as he's sort of being washed away from the police station. Bobbing and undulating, a squid squid past him. It was, he thought, like the soul of the sea. The squid all at once ejected clouds of darkness, as if it meant to efface everything. He saw no police officers now. The darkness propagated itself until it filled up the panorama, and then it became more intense, as if it were like, not opaque enough. And he eventually wakes up, and he finds himself in darkness. But there's like a radio, and apparently a phone. And he's hearing the radio program of this guy, Cavorting Gary Kearns who's, you know, waiting for callers. It's like one of those call-in radio shows. And he gets different, um, you know, different calls coming in. And he solicits a call. So Joe uses his phone to dial this number for Cavorting Gary Carnes, the DJ. And he, and Gary Carnes says, well, what do you want, sir? And he says, where am I? And then Kearns asks the world through the radio program, like, does anyone know where Joseph Fernwright is? Which is, it's all really bizarre. It's actually quite a humorous scene. And someone answers. Someone calls up the DJ and says, you know, a guy named Mr. Dwight L. Glimmon says, 
Joseph Fernrise in my basement at 301 Pleasant Hill Road. And uh, Gary Kern says, well, your trouble's over, um, Fernrise. And eventually Glimmon says, well, I better go down and get him out of the box. And, and he does that. And so the radio program, you know, kind of fades from the story at this point. But, you know, this was all a device by Glimmon to kind of get him out of the police station and into his control. But it's done in this humorous way. And it's not going to be the first time that Glimmon communicates with people in bizarre ways. Whether it's the, we saw the, the note in the toilet or later on we see him using bottles to communicate, like bottles, like messages in a bottle at the sea to communicate. And here he's using like a, kind of an artificial radio program to communicate with Joe. And so now we have Joe and Glimmon. Glimmon's in a, in a human form here. He can take different forms. He's actually, a, we'll get his description probably in the next episode, but he's a huge like 40,000 ton creature with tentacles and stuff. Um, but here he's kind of in human form on Earth. And he has this kind of straight-up conversation with, with Joseph. And it comes down to, like, what are you doing with your life? Why aren't you finding meaning? And he asks a very profound question to him. And he says, what strikes me odd is you having sat for all those months in your work cubicle waiting. Why didn't you go to a nearby museum and break any number of the pots anonymously? And you would have got their business. And the pots would be healed as new. Nothing would have been lost, and you would have been active and productive all those days. End quote. And it's it's actually an important question that Glimmon's asking, and it comes to the kind of the bullshit job question. I think that's where we're sort of at in a world in which work is less and less needed. You know, David Graeber wrote his book on the, the phenomenon of bullshit jobs, but that's the name of the essay. The book I think is called "Bullshit Jobs: a, a Study" or something. But anyways, the, the idea is the same, right? That a huge number of us are working in jobs that don't have any clear meaning, right? We don't feel useful in our work, right? So how do we create meaning in that? You know, is it just to create busy work for ourselves, bureaucratic work or, you know, pretend work? And Glimmon is saying, you know, you could, couldn't you be happy with busy work? And it seems Joe's smart enough to know that's not meaningful. That's not really getting to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is he's not needed anymore and he... He needs a task. He needs a mission. And Glimmon is going to, to offer that to him. Oh, wait, I'm wrong here. He's not talking to him in, in human form. He's actually talking to him via uh, the radio. And sometimes he, he fades out and Joe has to kind of rewind the, you know, charge up the, the radio again. Um, but um, anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, they talk about the police. He talks about, Glimmon talks about the banality of, of life on Earth. And and talks about, he also talks about health scala and what it means and how important this job is. And we get to the right at the end of this chapter, we get to the, the heart of the, the issue. Glimman asks Fernwright directly, he says, Mr. Fernwright, what do you really want? The time has come for you to choose to act, to participate or not to participate in a great historical moment. At this moment, Mr. Fernwright, I'm in a thousand places committing or helping to commit an enormous variety of engineers and artists. You are one craftsman out of many. I can't wait any longer for you. And then Joe asks, am I vital to this project? And Glimmon says, a pot healer is vital, yes. And that's what it takes. That's what it takes to convince him to go to Plowman's planet. And, and he does. And he basically commits to going at this point. But Glimmon stays there long enough to show him a piece of the broken vase from the cathedral that he'll repair. And it's beautiful and it's 
It's amazing for him. It, it rejuvenates him when he sees what kind of work he's going to be doing. And that's going to be cathedral worth of pots. It'll take him years and years, maybe his whole lifetime, to, to heal those pots. And, and he doesn't need any more convincing. And he agrees to go to, to Plavin's planet with, with Glimmon and these other engineers and scientists and craftspeople to, to engage in the great project of, of raising Heldskava. So that's that's the first part of Galactic Pot Healer. Again, it's a wonderful novel. It's it's by far my favorite Philip Dick story, and I think it's one of the most relevant for us as we as we were forced, I think, to to reconsider what work means for us and and how we can find meaning in a world where the the regular economy doesn't need us like they used to. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe it should be read in other ways. So please, um, I don't think so, but uh, if you do have your own thoughts about Galactic Popular, please, please let me know. Uh, send, my, send your thoughts to 100pagescast at gmail.com or leave your comments below. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters 5 through 8 of, of Galactic Pot Healer, and um, I look forward to it. So I'll, I'll see you then. Thanks, as always, for listening. You must you the bluebird, you will find peace and contentment forever if you're